Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it's a great pleasure to welcome author of the great Fail Fast, Fail Often, Ryan Babineau. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to have you on the show, and it's a topic that can be used in life, sport, business, and particularly innovation. And it's this idea of accepting that mistakes are going to happen. And before before we even get into talking about the book itself, it'd be great to let our audience know about yourself, Ryan. I started off in uh, cognitive science and uh, studied in different places, ended up uh, studying at Harvard and then Stanford, getting a PhD in uh, cognitive science and educational psychology. I've always had a lot of interests that go different directions, and I'm always trying to find a spot that kind of works for me. So this is something I started to study. As part of my work, I became a career coach, and I found that many of the people used that were coaches, they didn't seem to quite work in the way that I thought would be useful for the people I was seeing. So I started studying work and creativity, positive psychology, entrepreneurship, innovation, and I came up with my own methodology. And that course that I taught at Stanford for a number of years called Fail Fast, Fail Often. And then then that material became finally the book. Um, and, and so what I write about in the book, those are the tools that I use to uh, help my clients as a career and life coach. This idea, it's kind of made popular by the likes of Mark Zuckerberg with Facebook, the idea of Fail Fast, Fail Often. And it's something that a lot of companies preach but they don't actually put it into practice then but I'd, I'd love to talk about ryan about how a big company a big corporate for example can accept failure because they're so used to measuring people on tangible numbers like for example meeting your quarterly or monthly targets or your yearly targets or shareholder value and the world is going much more towards gray metrics where People are, you know, they need stuff like emotional intelligence. They need stuff like uh, empathy, and they're not so measurable. And and you know, how does how does a big company accept these things and and welcome these new people into their businesses? It's not one single thing that you do. Um, like you can't just decide, put out this, you know, company wide notice from this point forward, we're going to accept failure, and then you fix the problem. Because it there's a lot of things you have to build up front in the way you approach your business in order to have the right atmosphere where failure can be a part of what you can do. Um, you know, and there's a lot of great ideas that come from the lean startup world, which is you know the MVP, minimal viable product, to build something very quickly to test your ideas and to collect feedback, and you're expecting those to be wrong. You quite deliberately recognize your assumptions and you test them early on and you actually build that into part of your process you find a way to do things that's quite iterative with a fast you know kind of improvement cycle you build something you test you build another thing then you have to change your your sort of corporate culture as far as the way that you work with people you can't you can't have a, a culture where it's all about brutalizing people or getting the kind of gotcha moment um, you have to create a circumstance where, again, people can be creative and take chances. So, I don't know, there's, there's a lot of different pieces, and it's not an easy thing to just suddenly, if you've got a big uh, 
corporation that's been really doing things in the old stodgy way, it's going to take some steps to create an environment where you can bring in some young entrepreneur and they're going to be comfortable in your setting and they're going to be able to thrive. That's it exactly, isn't it? Because so many companies don't realize, they think that one magic thing like bringing in a head of innovation or starting a new incubator lab or bringing in a few people will change the culture, but it's it has to be done from the heart of the company. It has to be done from the top, the bottom, the middle. And Ryan, so, so I'm just going to jump back to something we were talking before we came on air. And it was this idea where my son, my, I have a four-year-old son, and back about a year ago, he was very reluctant to draw coloring inside the lines and do his coloring. And we didn't know where he got this from because what we tend to do with our children is encourage their trying rather than their successes. So when they come home and they go, you know, I got sticker for doing really well or the equivalent of an A, we praise their effort. We say, oh, you tried really hard on that. So one day, Jake, he came home and we noticed that he was very reluctant to, to color. So this really resonated me when I read the book, was that he was afraid to not succeed with it. So he was afraid that he was going to go outside the lines. And when I read the book, it resonated with me so much that that's exactly what happens in the school system, that we teach children that failure is a bad thing. And then they go on throughout the rest of their life. And you talk about this at length in the book. Can we talk about that? Because it's such an important thing and the schooling system still hasn't got to change this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's sad that it hasn't. Um, it seems like how much of school works is a kind of, uh, <laughs> it, it beats out of you your uh, willingness to, as you said, color outside the lines, you know, because you're going to get embarrassed or it's going to look be looked down upon. Or again, you're, you're going to fail. It's all about, you know, kind of fitting in with these very narrowly constrained assignments and, you know, just kind of meeting the requirements. Um, that's, I mean, that's, that's a, a huge topic. By the way, you made a great point, which is that you um, reward your kids based on their effort, not on their kind of performance. And, uh, uh, you know, I think that's a big problem with the school systems. They're set up to look at, at least in the U.S., to look at standards, you know, standard levels of performances instead of looking at just what the effort was and also what the improvement was. I mean, everybody can improve whatever your level, but that's not the kind of focus or the way schools are set up. And there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, there's some good reasons. That's very hard and it can be resource intensive to set up an environment where it's kind of, there's room for everybody to find their own path and improve at their own uh, optimal speed. That's hard to do teaching wise. And it, it's also hard to do resource-wise. So it's, a, it's understandable why schools can't always do that. But the unfortunate side is, is just like what you were talking about, your son, is that, um, I mean, especially like with arts, in the, in the U.S. at least, everybody, there's like, by the time you grow up, most people are like, oh, art is for other people. Like, I, I'm just bad at it. I can't draw. I can't paint. Um, because the whole programs are set up to kind of work for the people that, uh, seem to be really highly skilled, but it's silly because everybody can draw. Everybody can like you know mess around with creative stuff and have fun and express themselves and and get something rewarding out of it. But most adults here, they're just like so many people. Like oh, I can't draw. I just can't. You know, I'm not one of those people. And that you know, you're not like that as a kid. That's not natural. 
I mean, kids just will try anything. They don't care how it works out. They just want to get their hands in there and get messy and see what happens. But through school, it just gets, you know, kind of drained away that kind of freedom of, you know, trying things and seeing what happens. And then we put ourselves into these little boxes of, I can do this, but I can't do that. And it's really tragic, uh, kind of what that means for the freedom and the fluidity of our lives. Yeah, and you give some great tips on that, Ryan, throughout the book. And one of the ones I loved was this idea of a happiness map. You guys said in the book, the more you introduce happiness into your into your world, the more things you're going to actually try. Could could we expand on that a bit for the audience? Yes, the kind of level of happiness or kind of joy you have in your life is just fun. It's a fundamental driver. I mean, I think everyone should think of that as one of it's like a factor of wellness. Um, you know, so wellness, you know, you need to sleep and you need to eat the right foods. Well, you also need the right amount of happiness. And if you don't have enough, you won't be able to be creative or inventive or focus on the right things or make the changes that uh, can bring you to new places in your life. So it's really important to spend time being kind of proactive and deliberate about building enjoyment into your life. And it's, I mean, it's a, pretty straightforward thing you kind of recognize well what are the things that i enjoy that make me feel good that make me feel positive and alive and feel like i'm the best person that i can be you can also recognize the things that kind of make you feel diminished or negative or bring you down and i you know you mentioned in the book we talk about the kind of the happiness map which was kind of a a structured way to just kind of um write down or keep, keep track of where the places and the things that you do in your life and throughout the day and just kind of evaluate, well, how did that make me feel? Like, so when you came, if you came home from work and you were on, you know, reading Twitter feeds for two hours, how did you feel once you were done with that? You know, or if you went for a walk or if you, you know, went and played with your kid or how did you feel after that? And the things where you feel better, well, build more of those into your day, build more of those into your week. And the things that drain you, and make you feel again more negative or closed down or you know less appreciative of people in your world will do less of those what's weird i don't know people are just funny uh, we're, we're funny organisms that if you don't pay attention to this stuff most people are likely to kind of end up doing the things that kind of deplete them or distract them or kind of bring them down i mean it's crazy i don't know why but we all do that we just do crazy stuff that doesn't really amount to building enjoyment into your life. So you kind of have to be, you know, as I said, deliberate about it and pay attention and, and then, you know, take some effort to um, build the good stuff into your day. Yeah. And it reminds me, Ryan, of, you know, where I was kind of getting to at the start when we first started talking about the corporate entities is that there's, there's great talk of, let's bring in these kind of multifaceted tea workers, you know, T-shaped people who have one core skill and then they have lots of interests and these are the type of people we need in the company. But most people are actually, as you say, kind of dumbing themselves down, sitting around watching Netflix all day, drinking booze or whatever. You know, there's a little bit of that in life where people, they're just numbing themselves to do things that they don't want to do while the world is crying out for people who are, have really vast interests 
And, you know, can, can you give any more tips on that? Because I love that idea of the fun map or the happiness map. Like, for example, one of the things that I loved was um, you gave the example of where there's a ceramics teacher. Uh, could you tell our audience a little bit about that one? This is a, a kind of a informal experiment that was done by a ceramics teacher at a community college. And I should mention that this story comes by way of Ted Orland and his really delightful book. It's called Art and Fear. Um, so anyhow, the story is about the, the, this community uh, college ceramics teacher. So he has a pottery class. In the beginning of class, he tried this experiment. So he, he uh, kind of divided the room down the middle, and he told the students on the left-hand side, grade was going to be based on the single best technical piece that they made over the length of the course. So if during the first week they made an A-level piece, they could just take the rest of the class off. They'd be done and they'd get an A. And then for the other side of the room, he said that their grade would be based on the quantity of pots that they produced over the length of the course. So it didn't matter what they looked like. They were just going to take everything that they made over the length of the course, put them on a scale. If it was 40 pounds, it would be at 40 pounds of pots. It was going to be an A. If it's 30 pounds, it was going to be, be a B, uh, you know, 20 pounds of would be a C and so on. And so at the end of the, the course, this uh, professor made an interesting discovery. And what he found was when he looked at the students' work and, and based on technical and artistic sophistication, the students that turned in the best work were, were the quantity group. So the students that were just making pot after pot, because while they were just, you know, just going at it, making pot after pot, trying to make a big pile to turn in at the end of the year. They were experimenting. They were trying things. They were just having fun. And over the length of the course, they made a lot of pots and they actually learned a lot. In comparison, the group that was the quality group who was trying to turn in that one perfect piece, they spent so much time trying to like optimize and plan and design and get it just right that they didn't make that many uh they didn't make that many pots and therefore they didn't they didn't really improve so that's that's the kind of like summary of that that little informal experiment which i love because that's you know that's i think it just captures instead of trying to minimize your failures actually try to fail more quickly you know try to try to do things badly as as quickly as you can um that's that's the way you're really going to learn and if you look at uh you know people in a lot of fields like, like for example i love looking at the, how professional comedians work that's exactly how they work i mean they deliberately go out and just bomb again and again uh, matter of fact i heard aziz and sorry was giving an interview and he was talking about uh for him um, if he finds that he's going and, and testing his new material and doing stand-ups and everything's going well, he gets angry with himself because that means he's not trying hard enough. It means he's not pushing it. He's just staying in the comfort zone. Um, and that's not going to help him develop his new work. And most of us, we're just, we just have the opposite approach. We're like, wow, if we're putting our ourselves in positions where we're messing up or we're beyond our skill level or we're outside our comfort zone, then we got to withdraw. You know, that's all wrong. And it should be the opposite. You know, you should go out there and try to put yourself in situations where you're the least talented or you're, you know, you have the, the, the you know, the least amount of background in what you're doing and you have to really struggle to be able to just keep up with things because that's, 
how you're going to learn really quickly. That's how you're going to discover new things. That's how you're going to find new strengths in yourself. That's great, man, because that's what I love. I think people will look for the excuse of, oh, yeah, but I can't do that in my career. And I know, and I know that's a big thing for people because some people are almost looking for others to make mistakes so they can highlight them because they have this kind of scarcity mentality where, if they're making mistakes, that makes me look good, not me actually trying anything. That's that's why I love that study, the the study you mentioned in, in the ceramics. But also another one you talk about in the book with the comedians is Chris Rock. And, you know, this really resonated because it reminded me of the lean startup approach where you start with a minimal viable product, you get it out there, it's not perfect, but you start getting data back to go, is it working or not? Could we tell our audience about that one? Because I know I know you meant, mentioned the other comedian, but Chris Rock is is one you call out in the book. Yeah, yeah, that's a, I, I love that that story. Um, yeah, so the way that Chris, you know, Chris Rock, fantastic comedian, has these just you know perfectly choreographed nationals where you know every gesture, every moment, every word is just precise and perfect. And so you know, so how does he get to that perfection? Well, he has this notebook that he carries around throughout the day, and he just jots down little ideas for bits of his routine. And then he'll show up at some hole-in-the-wall uh, comedy venue, and oftentimes unannounced. And he'll just go, and he'll he'll get on the stool, sit down on the stool, and he'll pick up, bring out his notebook, and he'll start to just go through this list of ideas he has. Now, most of these things, they're just like really partially thought out. They're half-baked, and most of them actually just bomb. So he'll just... You know, he'll read something, he'll see what happens in the audience. He might take a note or two, then he'll go to the next thing. You know, meanwhile, the people in the audience who initially were like so excited, they're like, oh my God, Chris Rock showed up. This is fantastic. They're now going, oh God, Chris Rock just stinks. This is awful. So, anyhow, but you know, so Chris Rock will make it through his list, write down his notes, close his notebook, say goodnight, um, goes home. And then he, you know, next couple of days, he comes up with some more ideas. He may do this a hundred times to come up with a material that ends up being in that national routine. I suspect he's a pretty thick-skinned guy. I mean, he's a, he's a performer. But even so, it can't be very much fun, you know, just bombing over and over again. It's got to wear on you. But he doesn't let that stop him because he knows, you know, if he wants to make this fantastic material this is the fastest way to get there. It's just allow himself to fail and try and fail and try and keep building and do this iteratively. And, you know, that's how it end up with that, that perfect national show. It reminds me of, uh, this is, this is terrible now, but I, I, I'm throwing one of my friends under the bus here, but, uh, that story about Chris Rock plus the story of the, the ceramics teacher reminds me of, uh, back in my youth going to nightclubs and one of my friends, was a real handsome guy, but very, very shy and wouldn't go up and ask. This was the days where you there was slow sets <laughs> and you asked people to dance and he would never ask anybody to dance. And then there was another guy who wasn't <laughs> as handsome, but he'd ask everybody to dance. And it was a pure it was a pure numbers game. And uh he <laughs> eventually though, the the other guy who who played the numbers game honed the skill of talking to women and talking to ladies more. And he actually got really, really good <laughs> over time. But <laughs> I, I'm going to get him a copy of your book. <laughs> but, but right, right. Yeah, yeah, it certainly does work. That way. Yeah, the 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 the, the big thing I talk, talk from it is, firstly, in life, on a personal level, 
you just got to get out there no matter you're going to fail at everything in every career sales most salespeople don't ask for the sale because they're fearful of getting rejected most people don't write a blog because they're fearful of getting rejected same with books same with everything so so that was the thing i took out of it from a, from a life perspective and also to try small like you don't have to start big all the time that's kind of what the chris rock message was you can start small with a small audience test it out and see how it goes yeah i i think that that's a huge point um you know oftentimes when people think about this idea of of becoming less fearful of failure they think about what happens on the you know how you change your attitude on the backside like after something um kind of unexpected and maybe less than optimal happens how do you kind of respond to it but actually i think an even bigger part is what you do up front like the way you approach things and uh you know for me growing up i don't know they still say this but you know the thing i used to hear oh you know it's not worth doing unless it's worth doing well you know don't do anything unless you can fully commit and you know you got to do you have to be better than everybody else and you know and so anything you're going to try if you're you're going to start you want to exercise well you know then you're going to decide well okay i'm going to i'm going to join a gym i'm going to go 7 days a week and in 3 months i'm going to run a marathon and you know you turn it into this huge thing and the problem is and talk about this in the book when you turn things into huge things it just makes you much less likely to do them because it's such a herculean task and it's so painful the entrance to getting going, you just can't even overcome your your basic resistance. And so, you know, nothing happens. So like I hear all these people, they're like, oh, I'm going to start this blog. And, and they, they come up with, you know, lists of hundreds of articles. They spend months like, oh, I'm going to map out every article I'm going to write. It's going to be a manifesto. And I'm like, damn, well, why don't you like post one test blog and see what it's like? And the thing that happens is if you try something, I mean, first off, a lot of things you try in life, they turn out to be not, well, they turn out differently than what we thought. Sometimes things that we think would be really super exciting and wonderful are actually kind of boring, or we only need to do a little bit and then that's enough. So you might try writing your blog and you're like, wait, I'd rather start a podcast or or maybe I want to, you know, comedy or I don't know. Um, So that's one way things end up being different. Another way things are being different is we avoid trying things that would have, might've been really fun for us, but we have this idea that maybe it's not something we'd like. So one thing I'd say is you don't really know what something's like until you try it. And the other part of this, and this is well backed up in psychology is every time you take the step, you change opportunity space you're in. And Barbara Fredrickson, the psychologist uh, writes about this, where when you go out and do, let's say you write a little blog, you get a little, you know, little feedback of what it's like to write, and your friend might see it, and they might go, "Oh, yeah, I liked how you did this, but you know, it reminded me of this writer. You should read this." And then you go and read that. So when you take action, you get feedback, you get exposed to other things, and you also build your own kind of like how strong you are in your, your own feet. And then from that space, you have more opportunities. You can try something. You know, you'll have more uh, power to try the next step. But if you make something huge, like this huge, overwhelming task, you never take the first step because it's just too, you know, it's just too much. And, and then you never get to benefit from this kind of building up process where every step you're getting a little more momentum, you're getting more resources, you're getting stronger. And it's that little, that incrementing, incremental building process is 
which is really can be the driver that allows people to do these, you know, just huge, amazing things. That's brilliant, man. I love, I love that. And, um, I, I really highly, highly recommend the book fail fast, fail off and with Ryan Babineau and John Crumboltz and Ryan, where can people find out more about you and your work? You can uh, find out about me at my website. It's happenstancecounseling.com. Where I do my kind of more corporate uh, leadership work uh, is essentialsmarts.com. Ryan Babineau, author of Fail Fast, Fail Awesome. Thanks for joining us. Aiden, thanks so much.